Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and which, and you can find her at MissAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser, and you can find her at TarotByGinger.com, and she's a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And that's at TarotByGinger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Jim Willis. I'm happy to have him back. He's got a couple of new books coming out, one on American cult, and I believe the other one is, I know, Cosmos is in the title. I can't find it on the internet yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks Cosmo, for coming on. Cosmo and me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, good, to see, good to see you again, Gary. Good to be with you again. Yeah, fantastic. I always love having you on here. So um, tell us about the uh, new books. Which one do you want to start with? Well, let's start with American Cults, I guess. Um, it was a, a tough book to write. And uh, people say, you know, why why a book on American Cults right now? Um, <laughs> a writer has, you know, a lot of things you want to write about when you're an author, all these different ideas, and uh, you're, you're trying to put them in order and which one should I tackle next and everything else. But when a publisher calls you up and says... Uh, hey, I want to uh, do a book on American cults. Here's your advance money. You tend to put everything off the table and go with that. So so that's where American cults came from. It wasn't necessarily by design. It wasn't a book that I was somehow trying to write. And and it it turned out to be a very difficult book to write because, boy, some of these cults have just been, oh, terrible to get down in the muck and the mire and... And see what some of these cult leaders are capable of and what some of these cults have done in terms of human history and everything else. Uh, it was tough. But on the other hand, it was a, I was probably the one to write it because, uh, so many cults, uh, have sprung off from Christianity in one way or another. They began as Christian groups. Um, I'm thinking of, People like uh, Jim Jones and the People's uh, Temple uh, started off at the Full Gospel Church. And uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, David Koresh got his uh, start with Seventh-day Adventism. And I was uh, I was also alive and active in Christian ministry when everything uh, started to go so wrong there for a while back in the uh, 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. when uh, Jim Jones and uh, Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and all these Christian ministers named Jim kind of <laughs> scared me a little <laughs> But I was, you know, I was, uh, you know, active during all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. I-, I was familiar with it. And um, it turned out, that uh f- during the year I was writing it it was uh it was tough but I had a lot of experience with it and I learned a lot and I uh, had a chance to talk to some very interesting people um people who had come out of some of these cults and uh it was so although it was difficult to write I'm I'm kind of glad I did it I learned a lot of stuff about uh oh not only cults but about American history and uh 
how things operate. I learned a lot about American media. I learned a lot about uh, social networking and things nowadays. And uh, I learned a lot about how cults seem to be built into our DNA here in America. And mm. it was an eye-opener because I also, during the course of it, learned learned a lot about me. There but for the grace of God go I, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. uh, it was it was quite a time. So what is the definition of a cult? You know, sometimes I look at it as like, maybe like in some ways, like everything is a cult. Like the government's yeah. a cult. Yeah. All, oh, these, yeah. all yeah. the religions are cults. The sure. Corporations are even cults. Yeah, yeah. That was that was one of the hardest things. When I started writing a book about cults, my idea was just to talk about cults in general worldwide, and it was way too big a topic. So I uh, talked to the publisher, and we had to limit it. So we limited it to American cults, since the bulk of my readership is probably here in America. But the first thing we had to do is come up with a definition of cult. You know, um, what does it mean? Uh, so the definition that I came up with, uh, I spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, what I mean when I talk about cults, mm -hmm. and probably the common denominator of uh, almost all, well, certainly all the cults that I looked at, was that they they all have a, a recognizable uh, a founder or a current leader, and uh, he... And it almost always is a he. There were a couple of uh, women who led, led cults, and I talk about them too. But the cult leader is usually a very charismatic leader who's able to to speak in a language that his followers seem to understand. He, he instinctively knows how to push the proper buttons and when it comes to mobilizing people. And he'll speak to their needs uh, even if they themselves are not quite aware of what their needs are. Uh, cult leaders are almost always brilliant manipulators, but that shouldn't be surprising because cult leaders are almost always narcissists at least, and sometimes uh, going into psychopaths or uh, sociopaths. Um, a narcissist really feels that he's at the center, uh, not only of his own story, but of everybody else's story. <laughs> Narcissists usually lack really any empathy. They're just, they're really in it for themselves. And they almost always display a, oh, an unmistakable uh, arrogance. They're normally in search of validation. Uh, they might feel a small sense of, of shame if they do wrong, but it's usually not because of what they did, but because they got caught. Right. But from narcissism, it's it's easy to step over the line into becoming a sociopath, and that's that's quite a different animal. Um, a sociopath doesn't feel any shame. People are usually surprised to find that sociopaths can often pass lie detector tests because they don't feel they're lying. If they said it, it can't be lying. If they did it, it can't be wrong because it's, they did it. Uh, if they do something, it's obviously justified because they're the ones doing it. And they'll go to almost any lengths to, uh, to say it wasn't my fault. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing what's right because I'm doing it. That kind of thing. So that's, that's pretty much the definition of a cult, except that there is another side of it because not only is there that charismatic leader, um, life is is complicated, and for cult followers, people who join cults, it's it's usually because their life is is definitely 
a complicated existence. Um, life is tough. Yeah. And it's and 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 they don't understand. I mean, our lives are often out of our control. You know, just take cell phones for who really knows how a cell phone works. I mean, <laughs> nobody does. We we can push the buttons, but you're telling me a signal pops off to a tower someplace, which sends a signal into space to a satellite, which sends it down to a server, and somebody's able to hear a ring on their cell phone and pick it up right. That, who understands that stuff, really, except for a very complicated few people? Mm -hmm. And life gets out of control. So people are, are busy and complicated, and it feels like there's a need. Something is missing in their lives, and it's it's too hard to figure out. And all of a sudden comes this cult leader who says, I got the answer. Here it is, right here. And uh, by the time a person joins a cult, if there's any following at all, they're people who seem to have it all together. You know, they understand. And so they're there to welcome the new person in and just say, here is your answer. You know, life is simple. Here's the answer. You can put it on a bumper sticker. You know, that, that easy. Don't, don't bother figuring it out. We'll just tell you. And there is that need. And I kind of thought when I started off this project that, that, it was going to, I was going to discover the culture on their way out because I was of the idea that, well, people think nowadays, people, they have, there's so much more information at their fingertips and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, instead, it's just exactly the opposite um, because people are sitting a lot of time at home alone. They're isolated. Even at work, a lot of them are just sitting at a, at a computer or standing on an assembly line or driving a truck or doing something where they're all alone with their thoughts and they're seeing this complicated world. Boy, it's a big temptation just to say, yeah, here's this guy who's got it together. I'm just going to go with him. You know, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And bingo, you've got a cult. I understand that last count there's something like 5,000 active cults in America right now. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Hmm. So, are all cults bad? No, no. Uh, and as a matter of fact, a lot of cults started out one way and became recognized, like you said before about religion. Uh, Christian theologians even today uh, talk about early Christianity as being a, a Jesus cult mm -hmm. embedded in Judaism 2,000 years ago. Uh, and it just gradually over the time became recognized. And 300 years after the death of Jesus, when uh, Constantine recognized Christianity as a state religion, um, boom, there, there it was. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> theologians have a saying that says, a cult plus time equals religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, sometimes cults can even start out questionable, but then they get dignified over the age, over, over the years. Um, you know, a lot of early religions were considered cults. When Joseph Smith had his, um, his visions and the Mormon church began, the Latter-day Saints, uh, they were considered a cult and they were driven from the area and, uh, they made their way eventually all the way to, to Salt Lake City. He never, he never made it, but Brigham Young did. And um, what was at the beginning a, a cult mm -hmm. with a lot of questionable practices like uh, polygamy and other things like that eventually became an established established religion. Um, 
you look at American history, I always get a kick out of this because we read the history books and we're, we're told that uh, the early Puritans, when they came to New England, uh, were far-seeing visionaries, you know, who were going to build a city on a shining city on a hill and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But people don't remember that they were cults. They were driven out of their home. They were considered a cult. They were called separatists. Mm -hmm. And when they came here, um, yeah, sure, they built some great cities in mean, Boston and some other places like that. But then what happened as soon as they started getting uh, uh, organized and as soon as they started getting recognized? Well, they started demonstrating perfect cult-like behavior. They basically said, we got the right way, our way or the highway. And they began to persecute. If, if, if you were a Quaker, rode him out of town on a rail. You know, uh, if you were a, a, a shaker, any kind of thing that didn't agree. If you were uh, a, a single woman living alone who liked to take walk in the woods or gather herbs, you were a witch. And they had the Salem witch trials. Mm -hmm. And one of the great cult leaders of that time was a, a kind of a spiritual ancestor of mine, I guess, because Cotton Mather was a a preacher in New England Congregationalism, and that was a denomination that I was with for 40 years. And uh, he went to the Salem Witch Trials and, and heard the pronouncements and listened to it and never opened his mouth. Uh, that's, that's classic cultic behavior right there. And yet years went on, and eventually time worked its magic, and New England Congregationalism began, uh, you know, it split off like cults are always splitting off. Unitarians split off from Trinitarians. Uh, eventually, Congregationalists joined and became different denominations like the Conservative Christian Congregationalists or uh, the United Church of Christ was partly based on the uh, New England con Congregationalism. And they became respectable. Um, so... Yeah, cults aren't always cults, and that's that's why I worry a little bit when, when people say, is this a cult or is that a cult? I hate to label things cults, although I had to in the book because there's no other way to get around it. Mm -hmm. I hate to label things cults, and so I like to talk about cultic methodology. Anytime anybody uses the methods of a cult, they're a cult. As far as as, as far as we can see. Yeah, I've heard watching a special on Charles Manson, and, yeah. and like one of his Things though that that he did was was, was some kind of I forget which what book it was but um, I think it was like on how to do something with people yeah. that that influenced it was like this self help sort of metaphysical type book and he yeah. used that like it was like early NLP I guess yeah and he used yeah. that to build his following there's a there's a classic example Charles Manson was a classic cult leader and then the group that formed around him. The Manson family was, uh, that was a classic cult that uh, we might never have heard about it if they hadn't gone over the top and started doing all kinds of things like you know, kidnapping and housebreaking and even possibly murder and that kind of thing. But it had all the examples of a cult. Um, and, and cults use certain methods that frankly make me feel very uncomfortable because i used those same methods yeah. when i was a pastor of a church you know take a classic example of an, an oh let's say an economic cult there's a lot of them around um that are not necessarily doing anything bad but they're using cultic methods for instance you know 
person is having trouble paying the bills and they don't know, you know, where am I going to get the money to pay my mortgage or buy groceries or something like that? And they feel like they're just worthless in this capitalist, you know, ideas that we have about the more wealthy you are, the better you are and all that kind of stuff. And so a friend comes and he says, you know, you got to join this group. You got to come to, come to this group, not to join anything. Just come with me this weekend. We're having a big, a, a big rally, a big meeting at a downtown hotel. And, uh, and you'll hear some all kinds of inspirational stuff. So you go there, you get out of your car at the parking lot, you're feeling worthless, you're feeling like you're all alone, you're feeling like everybody's doing, you know, everybody's got their A-sides up on Facebook and nobody has the B-sides, you know, and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So you're thinking, I'm the only one, man, I, I can't make it go. You get out of the car and all of a sudden there's an energy in the air and People are shaking your hand and they're greeting you. Come on in. And you go inside and there's music pumping and there's this big ballroom is full of people who are happy and laughing and smiling and singing and dancing. And then the testimonies start, you know, where a guy comes up and says, I, I was down to my last dollar fifty, man. And I got this starter kit and I started selling product and now I'm driving around in a pink Cadillac, you know, that kind of thing. I'm I'm a success. And so you say, this is it. These are these are my kind of people. Here's the answer. And so you get there, you buy their starter kit and you go home and you're full of great intentions and you sell some product maybe to some family members or some friends and that's it. Nothing happens. And you get down in the dumps again. So your your friends, your new friends call you up and they say, well, come on to this next level meeting we're having. You know, it, it's the st- next step up. And, yeah, it costs a little more money, but come on, you know. And so you go. And all these people are well-meaning. You know, they're they're not trying to ruck you or anything like that. They really, they really care for you. But so you go in and it keeps building. And every time you... You leave one of these meetings, you're, you're pumped, you're jazzed up, you're all set to go. And then it starts to fade again. And so they start saying, well, you know, maybe you're surrounding yourself with, uh, uh, people who are negative, your family and your old friends. You know, they're, they're negative. They're drawing you down. Why don't you get away from them? Pull away from them. Stick more with us. And that's how a cult operates. And it's classic cultic methodology. And my problem with it is, that's the same thing we do in churches. For for 40 years, I would tell the people in my church, man, when someone drives into our parking lot, shake their hand, bring them into the church, show them around, make them feel comfortable, you know, take them to the coffee hour. And the music is going, and it's upbeat. And uh, then the testimonies start, you know, I did this, I did this, and God did this for me. And then the talented talker, me, stands up and gives a great motivational speech about get your life together and all this kind of stuff and then we pass the collection plate of course and uh and then people start to to tell us that well my family and friends uh think i'm just a holy roller or something like that you know what do i do well and some people well-meaning people in the church say, well maybe they're negative maybe there it is it's the same methodology i look back right now i'm ashamed of myself but i don't know what else to do i don't think i ever stepped over the line and became a a a narcissistic cult leader but boy i sure could have come close if i'd wanted to you know the temptation was always there and uh it's it's a it's a humbling thing to realize how close this hits every single one of us that is spooky it's definitely yeah. spooky. Yeah, yeah, it really is. In podcasting, there's like like life coaching 
life coaches are almost like a cultish thing. Like what you're talking about, yeah. that economic thing, you know, like, oh, yeah, we'll make you feel better, do this, do that, to, to, you know, pay them. Mm-hmm. You know, some, the first time it's like something minor, like 30 bucks. Yeah. And then yeah. they hit you up for the 100 bucks and like 300 bucks. And, 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 yeah. it, and in the end, like the only advice they're giving you, is to yeah. start a podcast to become a life coach yourself and start collecting other people's money. You know, <laughs> you know it, that that too hits hits me right between the eyes because uh, oh, a couple of years ago, as a matter of fact, I think we talked about this one time in a previous conversation. I had just published a, a trilogy, a series of three books on mm-hmm. ego, and uh, one of them was uh, one of the books. Well, the first book was about Merlin the magician. And the second one was about the Robin Hood, and the third was Snow White. And uh, I talked about the rise of ego in today's culture through the study of these three stories. But uh, in Snow White especially, there's a um, great scene in Snow White that everybody is familiar with where the, the wicked queen, who's trying to win over the innocent Snow White and get her into the cult of the queen, you know, that kind of thing, looks in her mirror every morning, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror said, you are, and that makes the queen, that feeds her ego, that's really great. And I was thinking about this story after I came out here to the woods to get away from everything, get away from life, and I started writing books, and of course, and I started having a website, I started having a YouTube page, and a Facebook page, and I found myself one morning turning on the computer. Couldn't wait to see how many new people looked at my YouTube page, the new video we just put up or something like that. And if, if there was a good number, I was feeling great. And if it were only a few, I'd say, oh, what did I do wrong? Everything else. And I, I was just like the wicked queen. You know, I was measuring my self-worth by how many people were tuning in. And I was saying, you know, like, computer computer on the desk who's the best of all the rest or something like that you know and the computer would say you know give me give me my feedback oh it's a terrible trap isn't it that we can get into that all these cultic methods yeah i do that too i'll look at my podcast numbers oh what's wrong here (laughs) (laughs) isn't it terrible oh we are we are we are interesting creatures. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so, suicide cults. Why do people start those? Like, you know, guys like Jim Jones and, um, what yeah. is that guy, Seventh Gate one? Or yeah, Heaven's, one? Heaven's, Heaven's, Heaven's Gate, Gate Applewaite, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, like, what's the point of having followers just to kill yourself in the end anyway? Yeah. You know, in, in every one of those, the people who leading the cult, um, whether it was uh, Jim Jones uh, down in Guyana, or or whether it was um, Applewade up here in with the Heaven's Heaven's Gate cult, they all began to think of themselves not only as narcissists and sociopaths, but they began to think of themselves as the chosen ones, and they kept it right up until the end. Their cult leaders actually began to think that these people were God or um, higher aliens from outer space or something like that, you know, people who were going to save us. And it just grew and grew, and the cult began to uh, elevate these people higher and higher until pretty soon the people began to believe, I am 
God or I am God's chosen one or something. And eventually, when there's no place else to go and when it all falls apart, there's only one thing left to do. Uh, Jesus went willingly to the cross, they tell their people, and he died. Uh, for And now we have to do the same thing. Uh, if if we die, uh, David Koresh was the same people with the Branch Davidians down in Waco. We are the chosen ones, and the, the, it's surrounded our the, the government or the deep state or the FBI or the evil people have surrounded us, and there's no way out. So if we take our own lives, we will die to this earth and wake up in heaven. It's the idea of death and resurrection. Powerful, powerful symbol. And uh, when people are willing to go to their death for you, then you know right away that there's a cult-like, a cult-like following. Hmm. Yes. And and I think it comes from people who try to find their self-worth or their meaning or their purpose through either somebody else or something else. It's always got to come from outside. Um, if Jesus comes back, he will save us. If uh, the aliens come and pick us up from this earth before the earth destroys itself. We will be saved. People always have the idea that somehow it's going to be, it's our salvation is going to come from outside, from somewhere else. And our worth and our purpose is going to be taken over for us, something from outside. And uh, they just don't realize, none of us, it's, it's hard to sometimes realize that if we're going to find our our own worth and our own purpose it's it's got to come from within not from without and uh, that's what makes cult leaders so deadly sometimes mm. yeah is it simply that people don't want to take responsibility for their own lives yeah and so they just yeah. turn it over to somebody else yep yeah that's right uh jim jones was great at this or a lot of uh you know when jim jones was at his height here in the united states i mean he was a at one point, a, a Methodist preacher, and then uh, he were, went with the Assemblies of God, and the Assemblies of God denomination uh, had this movement within them called the Latter-day Rain Movement, and um, Jim Jones got so involved in that, and that uh, he was eventually disbarred by the Assemblies of God and by the Methodist Church, and he started basically his own his own movement, and when eventually um, he went to, uh, uh, you know, people started complaining because their, their mothers and fathers and everything else were joining this cult. But in order to join this cult, these older people who felt vulnerable and didn't know where to turn, the world was changing so fast in the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. and they couldn't keep up. And so he just said, I'll tell you what, sell your house, give me every, give me all the money, just or, or sign your house over to us and we'll sell it. Uh, give me everything, and I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. And boy, that was that was a pretty powerful incentive. So these people said, "Okay, I can't figure out life." Uh, Pastor Jones, you do it. Mm -hmm. Sold everything, gave it to him, and said, "I just have to trust you for the rest of my life now." And look where it led him. Eventually, uh, because there was the IRS was after him because of the way he was handling funds and because of complaints, and eventually he moved down to uh, Guyana where he'd be away uh, out of the United States. But even then, uh, people began to complain to their representatives, their their uh, political representatives at home. And Reverend Leo Ryan went down there 
uh, to Ghana to check out the situation on the half of his constituents who still were there. And uh, what he saw was just appalling. And uh, Jim Jones and the leadership of the People's Temple Full Gospel Church, they knew that um, the jig was up. And, and Reverend Ryan was met on the tarmac with a hail of bullets. And boy, when you kill a con congressman and all of his entourage, you know it's over. Mm -hmm. And so that night, uh, 913 people drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, the cyanide, you know, wasn't really Kool-Aid, but that's become the expression, <laughs> the Kool-Aid. And uh, 304 of them were children. Their parents fed it to their kids. And then they took it after the kids died. And when everybody was dead, Jim Jones shot himself in the head. Uh, and that was it. 913 people dead there. Uh, it was just unbelievable. You You think, how could that happen? But it did. It did. Yeah, it's amazing how it just spirals out of control like that. Yeah, yeah. And like anything else, once once you got invested in something, whether it's investing a certain amount of money or whether you're investing a lot of time or a lot of your commitment, you figure, well, I got so much invested, I can't get out. It's like it's like paying, playing poker. I've lost so much money, I bet I better bet more to try to get it back, you know, that kind of thing. And it never works. Never works. And it's always step by step by step by step slowly. So we don't realize it's happening until it's too late. Mm. Is there anything that people can do to avoid or help people that are involved oh. with these cults? Oh, I wish I had an easy answer for that one. Uh, but no, I don't. You can confront people. And that was a, when cults were really big back in the, uh, in the seventies and early eighties. There were deprogrammers who made a living of being hired to kidnap people out of cults. But it didn't work, really, hardly at all. The trouble is that people went to a cult because they had a specific need. They may not have been able to identify it, whether it was loneliness or acceptance or validation or what. They may not have been able to identify it, but the cult supplied that need. And you can pull somebody out of a cult, you know, forcefully, but it won't do any good unless you replace it by meeting the need of that person. And unfortunately, that person themselves are usually the only one who can really supply that need. So when people say, I've got a family member, or I've got a friend who's involved in a cult, or I've had a couple of emails since the book came out, or um, calls from people who are saying, I'm involved in something, I think it's a cult, and should I get out? How can I do it? If you have a family member or a friend who's involved in something like that, the best advice I can do is all you can do is love them to death. You just have to be there for them. When they get out of that cult, they're going to need a have to supply a, that that need has got to be supplied, mm. and it's really almost impossible for you to supply it. All you can do is offer them a secure environment, a safe environment, so they can meet meet that need themselves and help them to understand that they need to meet that need. But it's really, really, really difficult. Even people who try to get out of organizations that are, that are not cults. I'm, I mean, I'm amazed at how many Christians say, I don't, I'm not happy in the church anymore, but I can't seem to get out. You know, I can't, because I'm just afraid, what if they were right? You know, that kind of right. thing. Yeah. Uh, Deepak Chopra was once very involved in the uh, 
Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, and his transcendental meditation, TM movement. And he, um, so were the Beatles, for that matter. He was, he was either uh, John or, or George, I think, who said, yeah, we were wrong there. <laughs> but they got very much involved with it. But Deepak Chopra got out of it because although he was uh, very big into uh, meditation and transcendental meditation, he recognized the cult-like following that was gathering around this leader, the Maharishi Mahashogi. Mm -hmm. And so he, he got out. He said, I wasn't comfortable with it. And that took a tremendous amount of courage. And uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard for people to do that. It really is. So I'm going to sort of segue down to your other book, but from this in uh, an interesting way, though. So I'm thinking, you know, like we're talking about this, and your other book is Me and the Co Cosmos and Me. Yeah, Cosmo and, and Me. And, and I'm thinking, like, you know, <clears throat> obviously, as about, you know, some of the things that we talk about usually is like, you know, more like new age spiritualism quantum type of stuff, yeah. you know, sh shamanic type of experience, out-of-body experience. Well, does, does that, some of the stuff that, that, that you and I are into yeah, kind of fall yeah. into the cult category? Yeah. Uh, Cosmo and Me, um, the, the subtitle gives it all away. The subtitle is uh, um, a, uh, a Seeker's Journey from Religion to Spirituality. Mm -hmm. And um, I call it Cosmo and Me. Uh, it's it's kind of an autobiography. It's a biography of a uh, this a, a seeker who, during the last seven decades, I'm 77 now, so um, I, you know I've known more than seven decades, and it occurred to me that I needed to have a, a palate cleanser after I wrote American Cults. I wanted to do something positive. And I began to look at my own life's journey and realizing that uh, it doesn't come out to every 10 years, but basically you can divide a, the last seven decades of American history uh, into seven different decades. Each of those 10-year periods, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, they were different. And uh, for a spiritual seeker, someone who's always looking for spirituality in their life rather than just a simple religious construct, uh, each decade offered a different set of challenges. Mm -hmm. And that's what Cosmo and Me is all about. I say Cosmo and Me because I hate to use the word God and Me because uh, everybody has a different version of God, yeah, you know, a different meaning word, for God. And they might not, when I say the word God, they might think I'm saying what they mean by mm -hmm. it. I'm not saying what I So I just started calling God um, Cosmo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Like uh, and, and, and it's interesting. I began to look back and, and see those different decades and realize each one of them offered a specific set of challenges to somebody who was seeking a spiritual life. For instance, the 50s. Um, I like to, you know, a, a person who was born as I was, you know, a white middle class, maybe even upper middle class guy out in suburbia. Um, that was a pretty leave it leave it to beaver type existence you know i mean donna reed and leave it to beaver and all that yeah i i like to think of it as a pond uh on the surface everything was nice and smooth you know a little duck floating around on the pond and lilies growing and everything seemed to be smooth once in a while a storm would blow across but it would calm down everything else 
But if you look below the surface, man, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Little fish were getting eaten by big fish and, and uh, the muck and the mire that had settled down there. And that was the 50s. Uh, to a kid growing up in suburban Detroit back then, um, you know, never had to worry about money and going to a typical suburban school and all that kind of stuff. Everything was pretty placid on the surface. Everybody was going to church. That was when churches started building what they called fellowship halls, and there were dinners. And A spiritual seeker back then, man, all you had right. to do was go to church, say the right things, say the platitudes, and that was it. You know, you never wanted to get too personal. God, you just call God the man upstairs, you know. Mm -hmm. You never prayed. You you hit your knees, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, keep separate from it, that kind of thing. But, boy, all that stuff that was festering underneath, man, did that come bubbling up in the 60s. And uh, as a child of the 60s, I was a little older. I was a teenager and going to high school and then college all in the 60s. And that's when, oh, peace and love and cults all over the place. And the beatniks of the 50s turned into the hippies of the 60s and uh, all this kind of stuff. And there were riots in the streets and people got politically involved. And uh, uh, Archie Bunker, you know, <laughs> in his living room, there was him and Meathead, you know, showed the two, two sides of it and everything else. And all that stuff that had been festering in the fifties came bubbling to the top in the sixties. And, and it was a, it was a tough time. So it took a different kind of spiritual seekers in the sixties. They began to look toward, well, that was where the whole idea of new age came about and, uh, the back to the land movement and communes and all of that stuff. Um, it was a different, it, if you were going to try to find your way in the 60s, you you started experimenting with different uh, psychedelics, and and uh, LSD was big, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out, and everything else. A different kind of seeking for spirituality. And then came the 70s, and, oh, man, it, it, everything changed. Uh, all, the, all the hippies came off the commune and started becoming bankers you know <laughs> and, and financial advisors and you know startups and everything else and, and all of a sudden economics took over in the 70s if you wanted to really find yourself in the 70s you had to dig down through all the commercialism and and um uh, elders were no longer listened to in the 70s because they didn't understand what was happening i mean how could an elder understand the internet you know, right. basically all this kind of stuff. And, man, when that came to a bust in the 80s, when the bottom fell out, um, people were just kind of wandering around. And that was a different decade, seeking in a different way. And uh, now, quite frankly, this decade didn't turn out anything at all like I thought. I mean, this is a, a huge political upheaval where we've got political cults on both the right and yeah. the left, and people not paying any attention to each other, uh, people hating each other. I mean, uh, and and people coming up with these platitudes. I, you know, I I come by a, a flag that someone has flying out in front of their house and in my town that says Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president, that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> and, and just no. No, you know, rainbows belong to God, you know, mm -hmm. and there's no give and take. There's no, 
uh, talking, and it, it's so different. I remember the days when I was up in New England and Tip O'Neill was a speaker of the house, radical, um, mm-hmm. you know, liberal, and uh, a tremendous amount of power in Washington. And then out of California comes Ronald Reagan, who was politically against everything that Tip O'Neill stood for. Uh, he was a con- arch conservative. And those two could go at each other and not have anything in common politically at all. But at the end of the day, they could sit down, put their feet up, drink a couple of beers, tell each other Irish stories, you know, and that kind of thing. They respected each other as people, as human beings, even though they disagreed politically. That day is gone now. Uh, we're in the days now of what I like to call the political cults. And I'm not talking about the right or the left. I'm talking about both the right and the left. There's... um political progressive cults and there's arch-conservative cults and uh boy that the two never meet and you have a different kind of cult now that frankly scares the living daylights out of me and that's the cult of the internet whereas people are connected and they and that can be a wonderful thing i mean you know you're doing important work because you get people on with differing ideas and you're giving people something to think about and all this kind of stuff and it can bring people together but there are a lot of uh, internet groups out there as you well know where people wouldn't have even known that other people existed who thought the way they did and now they meet on the dark web um, and uh, they form these little cults where there's a small group in Maine and a small group in Florida and a small group in the Midwest mm-hmm. and a small group in California all of a sudden they realize, hey we're, we're, we're pretty big and they realized how how much uh, verve they had when they could, just on the Internet alone, get people of like minds who would never even known about other groups like them to march on Washington on January 6th, you know, that right. kind of thing. And it, it was all the Internet. So everything in this life comes with a, with a heads and tails, a two-sided coin, good and bad. And uh, the cult of the Internet is a very real thing nowadays and it scares me because uh we're beginning to see it right now uh, a, a tremendous change uh, i don't know what for instance is going to happen there are groups that can actually hack into the political systems in other countries mm-hmm. and 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 uh, there's um i don't know what ai is going to bring by artificial intelligence you you talk about a weird thing there. Everybody's saying, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, I, I, I do worry about it because mm-hmm. it can have some great, great meetings, you know, and quantum computing can be a wonderful thing. But, man, let's not lose the negatives. Um, I, I think we're at the same point now that we were back in the early 40s with uh, nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Einstein, of course, coming up, you know, with the uh, what eventually became the nuclear weapon we, we have today. And it can do a tremendous amount of good in terms of powering people and, and all this kind of stuff. But what's going to happen when that uh, that wall of water that is coming out in, in Ukraine right now, coming downstream after the, uh, the dam was broken yesterday, and what's going to happen when that hits that nuclear power plant? We don't know. Can we get it off in time? We don't know. Three Mile Island, that was close. Uh, Chernobyl, that was close. Mm-hmm. We just don't know what can happen. And 
so all of those things they have the they have the basis for doing a tremendous amount of good but wow they can do a tremendous amount of evil too is there do you think there's a fine line or or is there a line even between like terrorism and cults oh uh, yeah i'm i'm not i hadn't thought about it in those terms but i'm not even sure there is a line because terrorism certainly uses cultic methodology you come in mm-hmm. You brainwash your people, you break them down, you build them up in your own image, and uh, you create people who are uh, committed to a cause and will give their life for it, you know, suicide bombers, things like that. And on the other hand, a lot of people have uh, wonderful military careers, and they'll tell you that's exactly what boot camp is supposed to do. Um, you know, that's supposed to take a person, break him down, right. and uh, build them back up again in, in a, a military mindset. And as a result, we have things, you know, uh, PTSD is now bigger than it ever was. I remember Vietnam when some of my friends uh, went off to Vietnam, and they've come back totally different people from what they saw and what they did over there. And I've talked to some of them now years later, and they said, I don't know how I could have done that. I don't. Right now, they said, "I, I can't consider myself even possible that I could go into a a native village and just start shooting people, women and children and men all, because I just assumed they were all the enemy. He said, now I couldn't do it, but back then it seemed perfectly normal. We were ordered, we did it. You know, it was all there was to it. That's all cult-like behavior. And so I, yeah, between that cults and terrorism, is there a line? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's all mind control. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, mean I think it definitely all falls under that. That category or that umbrella of, of mind control, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, you know, it, it all depends on what they're controlling. Are you controlling their spiritual beliefs? Are you controlling their political beliefs? Are you controlling their economic beliefs? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, psychologists have to worry about that all the time. When somebody comes in, they said, what do you think? And it's almost a cliche, but a psychologist if the psychologist starts saying, well, this is what I think you should do, that's almost like mind control or cultic behavior. So psychologists are trained to say, well, what do you think you should do? You know, the answer has got to come from you. Um, mind control is is probably the key factor of any cult. And I've seen that happen. In, in the 50s, there was a certain kind of mind control that said, um, we're... Building these great, like uh, most of the 50s, I was in Detroit. And, uh, you know, the Ford or Chrysler or GM would say, we're building uh, these these cars and they're going to revolutionize your life. you got to have one. And so they lobbied very hard to get uh, Eisenhower to put in the uh, uh, interstate system. And it was called, oh, the greatest infrastructure mm-hmm. project ever done. Everybody had jobs and money was flowing. But on the other hand, there were people who were very cynically using the interstate. They started building these big malls out of town. Uh, the first mall in the country was built up in Northland outside of Detroit. I tell the story in my book how I actually, as a kid, uh, pounded a few nails up there. <laughs> and and it was uh, on the surface, everybody was saying, oh, this is wonderful. We've got 
uh, roads now connecting everywhere in the United States. And uh, you know, Eisenhower did that, and that's great because that's going to make it safer for us to transport goods and cross country and everything else. And everybody's saying, "Oh, we got great cars. Uh, you can get out and aff- afford them." You know, and and the people who are building the malls are saying, "Come on out to the mall. You got the car. You got the roads. Everything else." And everybody was saying, oh, this is terrific. They're doing all this for us. No, it was cynical, mind control on the part of the government, on the part of big business, on the part of the marketing people, advertising people. You know, that came to fruition in the 50s. See the USA and your Chevrolet, and that was the (laughs) siren call, and everybody ran and, and did it and everything else. And it was followed by a different kind of mind control than the 60s. Uh... And probably that was where psychedelics got so big. They're controlling your mind. You know, pop an LSD pill or or take some mushrooms or something like that. Change your mind. They're trying to control your mind. Tune in. Turn on. Drop out. They're controlling your mind. But in the in the course of that, of course, it was a different kind of mind control was sub- substituted. Then, of course, when we hit the the 80s and the, and everything else and everybody or the 90s and everybody mm-hmm. was talking about control the idea is if you're success if you're wealthy then you're a success and now it's it's political the political parties are trying to control your mind both right and left they never tell you quite all the truth you know they never show themselves <laughs> warts and all you know none <laughs> of them do and it's a different kind of mind control but it is mind control um, and it's not just in politics. I, I was so afraid um, when I look back of what happened in academia, for instance, when I was a college professor. I was very much aware how easy it was to, um, well, I saw professors do it. You know, they would write the textbook that was used in their classroom. Uh, me too. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wrote the religion book and and then all of a sudden some new stuff comes along that seems to contradict it. And, uh, well, mind control. I don't want the students finding out about this stuff because, I mean, that, all that's going to do is just make it harder for me. i got to answer these questions. It's in my textbook, you know. So you sweep the stuff under the rug, hope, hope that nobody hears about it. It happens in academia. And cruel things can happen I, in, in, in different science fields. I mean, here... Sciences. Scientists are supposed to open to the truth and always looking for new stuff, right? But they do terrible things. I mean, Hugh Everett, for instance, uh, came up back in the 50s, 56, I think it was, and Hugh Everett came up with the idea of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, oh, you're crazy. And they they wouldn't have anything to do with him. He couldn't get a job. He couldn't get te- couldn't teach. Uh, if he wrote books, nobody would publish it. He forced him out of physics tremendous theoretical physicist forced him out of the field totally he had to get a job working in the government which maybe turned out for the best because he was the one who came up with the idea of mutually assured destruction which might have got us through the cold war i don't know but anyway they you know he died thinking he was a failure thinking he was a total failure because they not only attacked his 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 facts they attacked his character and they, uh, the, in the, the cult of science, uh, blackballed him and said, you're not part of us. Now, his ideas are accepted everywhere. Mm-hmm. Very common. I just, just saw a, a news report um, 
uh, oh, what's his, uh, Michio Kuko? Yeah. Kuko? Kuko. Uh, I just heard him say something that was so refreshing because, uh, you know, some of the new, new stuff from the James Webb Space Telescope is just upending the whole right. idea of the, the Big Bang and everything else. And uh, I heard him actually say, we may have to rewrite the textbooks. <laughs> what a <laughs> courageous thing to say. But very few scientists will do that. You know, the, the, the Clovis first archaeologists in this mm -hmm. country who thought that the Clovis people were the first people in America 12,000, 16,000 years ago at the most. They held sway for a hundred years. If you weren't in there, if you weren't in their cult, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't teach. You couldn't get any money to do archaeology. A hundred years they ran the cult of archaeology, mm -hmm. and their particular brand of it. And now that's starting to break up. Yeah, so. And now Newtonian physics too is starting to. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's taken 80 years for quantum physics to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's Boom. right. Because yeah. people don't want to let go of Newtonian. Yeah, even even Einstein didn't want to do it. You know, spooky mm -hmm. action at a distance. Or, I mean, he, he talked about it, he acknowledged it, but he didn't want it. Yeah, it took him a long time to deal to with do it. it. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Oh yeah, the, the cults are uh, the or cult like methodology rather is everywhere. Boy, we have to be so careful of it. And my uh, that's why I love to write. Cosmo and me because I could inject some humor. Hard to put humor into American cults. I did have mm -hmm. one chapter that I wrote about the oh I forgot the guy's name now who came up with the birds aren't real cult mm -hmm. um, and he, he was hysterical. He he was doing it as a complete put down mm -hmm. and he came up and stayed in character for years and so many people who knew what he was doing they stayed in character. The idea that he came up with this idea that uh, birds aren't real; they're all government drones. And oh real yeah, birds. yeah, that. yeah. And and you can you can tell you can, you can tell it for sure because you know he had absolute proof. Because when you see birds on a power line uh, resting on the power line, they're recharging their batteries and stuff <laughs> like that. And I mean, so I I did put that chapter in because I thought that was absolutely <laughs> hysterical, a brilliant, brilliant idea of a put on for cults. But you know when you when you stop to think about it, uh, uh, I look back on my own life in Cosmo and me, and uh, and see how I made the journey from religion to spirituality, and how hard it was to do that. Uh, pressures were immense. I finally had to when I retired. Man, I finally had to come out here and live in the woods just to get away from that all and find out consult the essential me. You know that Thoreau talked about when he went out to the woods at Walden Pond. And uh, it's <laughs> it's a uh, it's a a constant trouble with us. Hmm. Maybe if people just avoided each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's 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 like I say, everything comes. We live in a world of of dualism. Everything comes with the good and the bad, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's the whole secret. But the secret to knowing where the line is, I think, is spiritual growth. Um, there are some uh, religious leaders who didn't know where the line was, and they crossed it. And uh, a lot of religious leaders who could have crossed it, but did realize there was a line there, so they didn't. And a lot of it has to do with fame and money and validation and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's easy to take the the easy way out. Um, the old the old 
biblical writers were so right with that great metaphor, you know, mm. narrow is the way to go heaven and broad is the path to hell, you know, and the choice is ever before us. Would always, you consider ever. Joel Olstein like a cult leader? Someone like well, he, he certainly uses some cultic methodologies like a lot of big time preachers do. Uh, and this whole idea of the prosperity gospel, you know, God will, God will bless you if you, um, you know, if do your, you know, do your duty as we see it, and, yeah, and you know, give you're, us you're doing give your us, tithing, give us your give right? us your money, your tithes and offerings. Send them here, and God will bless you for it. And just to prove it, uh, Joel Osteen lives in a mansion and drives around in some very expensive cars. Uh, Jim Baker uh, did it with the PTL Club, um, and he, he spent time in prison because of it uh, when he built that great Christian amusement park mm-hmm. down in Florida along with his uh, uh, big condominiums, and, and you, know, you could have a timeshare there, but he way oversold it, and the funds were used right. I mean, he had so much funds that he actually was the first one to put up a, a, a Christian satellite that would broadcast just Christian broadcasting. That was <laughs> that was the announcement he made on the day it went up in Florida. I'll never forget it. The PTO Club swears from now to end we promise that we will broadcast Christian broadcasting from now to the return of Jesus Christ. How much money does it take to put a satellite up there? And people gave it and gave and gave and gave. And he wound up in prison for it. He was in prison for 45 years, but he got out after only a few. And he's doing it again now, ever since 2003. Um, you know, he's up, he's up, uh, north of me and he's still, you know, selling the handkerchiefs that he has personally blessed that will make you, you know, more of a success and all this kind of thing. Uh, but, but, you know, one of the things, like, I think the Sony stuff that you and I talk about, you know, normally, too, when we get into, like, you know, spiritual beliefs that we have, you know, the individual has control. Like, the power of, of prayer, in, in a lot of ways, is more the power of our own ability to manifest through our own consciousness, is what yeah. it is, and our yeah. own connection with the universe, that we're the part of the universe, and the universe is us. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, you you just put your finger on it when you said the universe is us. Um, that's really that's really the key. The idea. I, I love the Hindu concept of of uh, Brahman and Atman. You know, you, you can't describe Brahman. You can't use words. There are no words fit to describe Brahman. And um, if if you try to put Brahman in a verbal box, you've missed it. But Atman is that inner expression, the soul, for lack of a better word, the spirit that is within each one of us. And the great concept 6,000 years ago, the Hindu Rishi saw this, that thou art that. Brahman and Atman are one. The universe is not out there. It's in here with us. God is not out there. God is in here within us. We are all expressions of that that unity, that source, cosmo, I call mm-hmm. it. And yeah. and that's the real spiritual journey. Joseph Campbell was so good at this. You know, he said, you want you want to go on a quest? Don't go out there. Go in here. That's where you're going to find it. So, 
Yeah, we're we're intimately connected, obviously, with the universe, and we're part yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I love the whole idea of biocentrism. Uh, uh, the idea that uh, you know the universe doesn't really take shape. Anything we're looking at, it, it doesn't take shape out there. It takes place in our minds. Yeah, we created it. It doesn't. Yeah, we created ourselves. It doesn't come into existence until. We have it in our minds, mm-hmm. and that's of course quantum physics. That's what quantum physics said. There, there has to be an observer in order to bring about an effect. It's, it's uh, quantum foam until you look at it, mm-hmm. and if you if you look at it, and you expect to find a wave. You're going to find a wave, and if you look at it and expect to find a particle, you're going to find a particle, and it, uh, you know, you are the thing, which really says something about consciousness, you know, the whole idea of the Big Bang. Um, who was the observer at the beginning? How could it have possibly happened, according to quantum physics, unless there was a consciousness that um, brought it out to, to bear? And then when you start to think that we are simply the manifestation of that same consciousness, wow, that, that, Yes, that powerful. puts it right. That yeah. puts it right inside where yeah. it belongs. It, it's yeah. both empowering and humbling at the same time. Yeah, I you're think. right. You've hit it right on the button. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, on my on my website, I love that quote that uh, says the universe is not only bigger than we imagine; it's or stranger than we imagine; it's stranger than we can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and that universe is all within us. I'm I'm writing a book now on uh, near-death experiences, and I'm amazed at the number of people who have that experience after they've died of holding the cosmos in their hand and and realizing that it's all within them, and it always mm-hmm. was. Wow. Uh, comforting and humbling. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Empowering and comforting, yeah. Yeah, because you realize, you, you know, the, the universe is what you're going to focus your attention on. So yeah. from a personal point of view. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I'm just like this small part of this massive yeah. experience, whatever this yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is even. I, you know? I love, I love Einstein when he first heard that and said, you mean the moon doesn't exist if I'm not looking at it? And the quantum, <laughs> quantum physics said, yeah, yeah, Al, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> The moon only exists in your mind, you know. That's right. That's that's where it really exists. Yeah. So, so um, it's been a pleasure having you on, as always. Oh, thank you, Gary. It's always good to talk. I, I love I love we are just our discussions kind of grow as we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always good. And um, before we wrap it up, though, where's the best place for everybody to find you? And, uh, and when are the books coming out? Well, I'll tell you, the best way is just go to jimwillis.net, and that's my website. And on the front page, the home page of that website, you'll find both books, The American Cults and Cosmo and Me. And all you got to do is click on either one, and it'll take you uh, either to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Target or um, in some cases, you know, it might take you to Visible Link, which published American Cults, or take you to a brand new publishing company, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I, mine was the first book they published uh, called Uncle Bear Publishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can go to their website, too. But just go to jimwillis.net, and uh, all the rest of my books are there, too. You just click on the cover under books, and it'll, and it also lists my YouTube page and my Facebook page and all the rest of that stuff. 
Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to that in the notes of this episode so my listeners Wonderful. can find you, contact you, and buy your books. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. I I really like to say this. On, on my webpage, there is a contact page, and all you have to do is click on that. And uh, I still am to the point where I try to answer every uh, every email. I'd love to hear because, you know, you and I can see each other as mm-hmm. we talk to each other long distance, but we have no idea who's out there. So <laughs> I, I love it when, when people contact me and say, I heard you and I, I agree with this or I disagree with that. It's just great to keep the dialogue going. Yeah, I like it too. You know, it helps me gives me feedback on what people like, what people don't like. Sure. You know, it's the only contact we really have with our audience. <laughs> really good. Really good. All right. Well, this is fun, and I'll do it again. We will. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it. Me too. And just hang on for a moment. I'm just going to play the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.